So uh, you'll notice there's a, a gad with some blanks on it. To be honest with you, I was mi- oh thank you. I was missing AJ, and I thought in, in AJ's honor, I would make a blank you know, a sheet with blanks on it. So don't get used to that. That's just because AJ's not here. That so. puts pressure on me now. <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. So we have been, um, you know, taking a, a, a break from preaching expositionally through uh, the word, which is going to be the default. That's our default uh, for preaching. Um, it seemed appropriate to take a break from that at, at the kind of beginning of the church as this church is forming to have some prolonged conversations about the documents that, and, and the, the principles and the, the doctrines that are underlying the formation of this church. So that's, that's why we, and you're going to hear that over and over and over um, because expositional preaching is so important to, to us. Um, so uh, we're, we're trying to explain why we're doing what we're doing because it's different than what the norm will be. So last week we're, we heard from AJ uh, a sermon about total depravity. And uh, if you missed that or if you'd like to listen to it again, uh, our, we have our podcast is up. So you can go back and listen to that. If you miss a sermon, if, if you want to go back and listen to something, if you want to recommend it to somebody, that is there. If you need help finding that, let me know, and I can point you in that direction. Um, so last week, AJ preached on total depravity. And, and there's a piece of that I want to come back and visit because uh, I did not understand this until relatively recently. Uh, and, and that's that the concept of Calvinism, and, and remember we're preaching on TULIP, which is the, the five canons of Dort is the appropriate name for them, which we all know why that didn't catch on, okay, the canons of Dort. So instead, they have been, they've been kind of popularly known as the five points of Calvinism. And, and to be honest with you, it always kind of bothered me to think of myself as a Calvinist. Because I, I, we see in Scripture this warning against, hey, don't, you know, I'm with Apollo and I'm with this person, I'm with this person. We see this warning and, and that is a, is a real thing, right? So, so it kind of bothered me to kind of admit, yeah, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, I believe in these things. And part of that was because in my mind, I always thought Calvin had come up with these things and said, look at the, I'm such a smart theologian, these are my beliefs and you should believe them too. And that is completely not how it happened. So these principles were doctrine. They were orthodox doctrine. So they were what the, the general Christian believed for years and years and years. And then a group came up against that. And then the Council of Dort happened. All these people got together and they came up with these principles to answer the, the allegations. And those were then named the five points of Calvin. They became known as that. Calvin was long dead and gone. He did not name these after himself. He was long dead and gone. So, so that makes me, that, that really helps me uh, to understand that 
Calvinism is just what the church believed, and it was not formally called Calvinism until the Orthodox beliefs were being challenged years and years later, okay, after Calvin. So, <clears throat> so with that little reminder of, uh, though AJ did a better job of explaining it, so you can go back and listen to his, his sermon. He, he took more time with it. So, um, all right, so from AJ's sermon, we're all depraved. We're all depraved sinners. There's nothing good in us, not anything. So now we come to today's topic, <clears throat> which is unconditional election. It's the you in TULIP. Or, <coughs> excuse me, sovereign grace. Some people actually call it sovereign choice. <clears throat> so any one of those things, <clears throat> excuse me, any one of those things, we're all talking about the same thing. Okay, so those things are talking about different things. Some people prefer sovereign grace, and they try to get away from the word, the term election, because it's it's kind of got this uh, stigmatized connection to it. Um, that's the word that's in most translations of the Bible, election. So I have no problem staying with it because that's what the Bible uses. That's the word the Bible uses. So, so when we think about these things, uh, there's tons of scripture. Tons and tons and tons of scripture, and you're going to see some of that as we go on. <clears throat> but I really wanted to start with, I wanted to focus on one particular passage as the focal passage, and that is Romans 9, verse 4 through Romans 10, verse 21. Now, I'm going to read this as we go through it, so there's no real... Um, so I'm not going to read it all and then come back and read it as we go through it. I'm just going to read through it and, and stop and talk about things as, as they come up. So I'm going to start in Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, <clears throat> the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to flesh, is the, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac <clears throat> shall come your offspring. Uh, sorry, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. <clears throat> so the way we're going to do this today is we're going to interject challenges as I go through this passage. So this brings us to the first challenge. And the, the challenge is, you know, is election just an inheritance? Is it somehow genetic or inherited trait? And election is not an inherited trait. Not for the Jews and not for us. Out of faith, we teach our children about God and show them how Christians should live 
and lead them to live a, cons- a life consistent with the life of a believer. But God is not constrained or, or limited by our bloodline. And that's what this passage is, that's what this scripture here is saying, is that, you know, not all from Israel belong to Israel. You know, this is saying that there's a, there's, this isn't just an inherited thing. Now, um, this is interesting, particularly in today's world, because today's world, we deal with something, um, and we deal with racism. And, and I think a better term that is, is a better term for what most people think of as racism nowadays is identitarianism. And this is the idea that who you are or who your parents were, what color you are, something like that, some a group of traits that you have, that that is the most important thing about you. And uh, if someone says that your bloodline or race or parentage or uh, is, is the most important or even a significantly important aspect of your worth or value or identity, then please be very careful of what that person is teaching and that line of thought. All right? Quite honestly, you should consider fleeing from that person. Uh, identitarianism is dangerous. It leads to horrific places. Uh, judging people uh, by the, the sins of their father and their, their father's father, those are terrible places to go. So, um, so yeah, that's my, my aside against uh, identitarianism uh, and, and racism in general. So, uh, all right, so picking back up in Romans 9. Romans 9, 9. For this is what the promise says. About this time, next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born, uh, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good nor bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So this brings us to the second challenge. God knows who's going to believe and who's not, and then he elects those who are going to believe. This is the concept of foreknowledge. Okay, the concept of foreknowledge. And that maybe God uh, knows how we're going to act before we act, and is only electing those who are going to do good things, who are going to do good works. And this, this scripture, verse 11, is clearly stating, no, that's not what this is. <clears throat> and, and it's going to pick up back up in the second half of verse 11. So uh, I'm going to start reading verse 11 again and finish it. Though they were not yet born and had not done and had done nothing, either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Brings us to challenge three. It is, this is 
<clears throat> if it's not based on our behavior, if, if, if our salvation's not j- based on our behavior, then it's just not fair. And it's not just. So I'm going to pick back up in Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church that preached mainly from uh, the King James Version. And I believe it's the King James Version of that verse 16. So Romans 9, verse 16. And it says, uh, he who wills or he who runs. It's like this idea of like trying to get there. Like this trying to work hard enough, to run hard enough to get the, to get the prize. And clearly the, verse 16 is telling us, look, this does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God. That's who decides who has mercy, okay? So, so brings us to challenge four. I don't like the idea that God controls who follows him and who doesn't. Okay, that's the challenge, challenge four to election. So I'm going to pick up in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. And I might, uh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that he has so when he has mercy on whomever, whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So we see that answer, right, to challenge four, which is, hey, look, it's clear in Scripture. He's, he's hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did it for his glory, did it for his purpose. And that leads straight into this, this extra, this next challenge right here that, that we see um, in verse uh, 19. Uh, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, I want to talk about Proverbs. So Proverbs 16, verse 33. This is an interesting answer to, uh, I, you know, I don't like the idea that God controls who follows him and who doesn't. Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, God's sovereignty is over everything. Even the simple things of casting a die, God is in control. So, so and this challenge is one of uh, the harder ones for me. Because ultimately, we can't change people's minds if they say, I don't like the idea of God controlling who follows him and who doesn't. You know, this is fundamentally one of the biggest challenges to unconditional election. 
is people just say, I don't like it. It doesn't feel right to me. And my answer to that is, is pretty straightforward and could seem pretty callous. I don't get to decide. We don't get to decide based on you know, truth, based on whether or not we like it or not. It's just not how it works. So, you know, we, it, it's not my job to tell people and make them feel good. It's, it's not my job to tell you what I think or what I want something to be. It's my job to read scripture and preach from it, from the whole counsel of God. So, so this is one of those things, and, and I have had conversations with pastors who have told me, yeah, I don't preach about election. I don't preach about election because people don't like it. People don't like it. They disagree with it, and it makes them feel bad, and it make, brings up all kinds of questions, so I'm just not going to talk about it. And I want you to realize that the intentionality of the decision that the elders made to, to sit down and, and literally preach about things that split churches. I mean, there are churches where half of the body or two-thirds of the body leave because the pastor gets up and preaches about these things. And that's how, you know, we, that was an intentional decision. It's not like that's unknown to us, Right. But we take very seriously the call to preach what the Bible says. So that's what we're going to do. So, um, all right, so coming back, I uh, also wanna, want you to point you to Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13 that says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, brings us to challenge five. Challenge five. How can God hold people accountable for their sin? And this is kind of piggybacking off verse 19 there. It says, you will say to me then. So basically Paul is, is setting these up, right? He, he's anticipating, and the Holy Spirit through Paul, <coughs> is anticipating these challenges. So he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So this is saying, okay, if, I, if we agree that God's will and God's control of everything, then how, we can, how can God still find fault in people if they're doing his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So first of all, this, this is establishing something that you hear us talk about all the time. To, to understand the gospel and understand God's word, you really have to understand who am I as a man and who is God. And we've got to get God in his right position and get man in his right position and everything else starts working out. Things start working out when you do that, right? Your, your relationship with other people start working out. Your marriages start getting better. You, you, everything starts working out better when you look at this and go, okay, God is here and I'm here and get those in the right place. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So basically saying, look, you, you're not even, you, you don't even qualify to answer back to God at this. But he's kind of going through the, the motions. 
And he's going to explain the logic here. He's going to put man and God in the right place. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So here's the the image that Paul is using here. He's using a craftsman, right? A sculptor uh, or a molder, and then he kind of gets direct into it and says, okay, a potter, let's talk about a potter. And the way potters work is they have a big lump of clay and they cut that lump into pieces and they make things out of the pieces. And Paul's saying, okay, what does the vessel you make, how can that pot look at the the potter and say, you made me wrong? Or or, you made me for this use? I don't want to be that use. I want to be a different use. It's absurd, right? Right? There's such a gulf between the pot and the potter that that's absurd. Now, we are people, and we don't like to be thought of as a pot because we say, I'm, not, I'm nothing like a vessel. I can think, and I can talk, and I can move, and that, that pot just sits there. Well, that's a terrible analogy. That doesn't hold up. No, that's the point. The gulf between the potter and the vessel, that's a close, you, you, that's, you start looking about that, that's, that's the analogy. It's not that, oh, we get to do what, we, you know, this does breaks down because I'm not a vessel, I can move and talk. No, it's talking about the gap between the potter and the vessel. And that's, that's, that's what the, the story is trying to show us with us and God, is that there's this immense gap and that God made us. And God didn't just make Adam and Eve and then back off and kind of let things happen. God is actively involved in the creation and sustaining of all creation. So the fact that I am here today breathing is a decision by God. So I, I am that. So when you start thinking about it in those terms, you start to realize I am nothing but a lump of clay in the hand of the potter. And this verse tells us that there's two types of vessels, right? We are either vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. And, and this is going to be a, a common theme in, in all of these answers. You may have already seen some of the answers, the challenges, answers to the challenges. But throughout this, there's a question. Okay, so if, if everything brings God glory and he has an elect then how does that work? Like what's, that, what's the character of God being shown there? And, and some people will challenge the character of God when they challenge election. And the way to, a good way to think about this <clears throat> is to think about there's the elect, which is God's 
vessels of mercy. So that's showing his mercy side of his character. And then there's the vessels of wrath. And that's showing his justice side of his character. Because that wrath is a righteous wrath. So, so those are the two, two types of vessels that are being created in this analogy. All right, so continue with verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who did not belong, I will call, or not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left his offspring, we would, uh, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So without God, right, without God making sure to protect that remnant of Israel, they would have been destroyed for their sin. So it was God's mercy to just protect and keep Israel going. So verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So uh, I want <clears throat> to step out of Romans real quick and go to Genesis. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant... So this is, um, this is a, a story of uh, a brother who has been betrayed by his brothers and gone through this terrible thing. They, they plotted to kill him, sell him into slavery, and... and they wanted him to be destroyed. And then he would later go on and save them. And they, their father is now dying or dead. And they are worried that the brother was only protecting them, keep, you know, not killing them while the father was alive. But now that the father's dead, oh my gosh, now it's time, you know, it's, it's time. Joseph's going to kill everybody now, Right? So this is what the context of this verse is. As for you, he's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about 
that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this is, again, another example of God making provision to keep his people alive, even using sin, using terrible actions of people. What they meant for evil, God was using for good. So he, he preserved even them through, they, they sinned terribly, trying to kill their brother, but God used that to save even them. So, all right, challenge six. But if you try hard enough, you can earn your salvation, right? Right, if we try hard enough, if we do good enough, we can earn our salvation. And here's the answer to that. <clears throat> Verse 32, why? So he's, he's saying, I'm going to actually go back and pick up verse 31 there. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So... So this uh, beautifully points to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then coming back to verse 33, talking about the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in, in him will not be put to shame. So again, this is another one of those things. Are you telling me? You know, and, and so I'm going I'm to do this as challenge number seven. God ordains people to stumble and not to believe. Is that what you're telling me? Is that what Paul's saying here? And the answer is yes. That stumbling stone, that's Jesus. So 1 Peter 2, <clears throat> verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you, were, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, remember what Colby talked about? You know, how far away we were from God? The excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his miraculous light. And you may say, oh, it's a people. We're talking about genetics again, right? We're talking about a race of people, a nation. No, verse 10. Once you... We're not a people. You're not a people. You're scattered. You're not a people. But now you are God's people. 
once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, Jesus is either the cornerstone of your foundation or he is a stumbling block. That's it. Only two options. All right, so I'm picking up in Romans... Romans 10 now, we've transitioned to Romans, Romans 10 out of Romans 9. <clears throat> Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for you, a prayer to God for them, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So challenge number eight. If election is true, then there's no need to pray, right? If this is all God's will and everything's going on, we don't need to pray. In the heart of this scripture, you see Paul praying for his brothers. Here we see, we clearly see Paul saying that he is praying for the salvation of unbelievers, All right, I'm going to pick up in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Challenge number nine. God's standard is holiness. Anything less, he will reject. You're just not good enough. So these are things people say. I, I've heard this before. I've heard you're just not, you, standards holiness, you got to be holy. You got to do better. You got to do better. So Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who <coughs> believes. For Moses wrote about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in my heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or, verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which, by the way, I think it's interesting that this is a passage many people use to challenge election, unconditional election. And it's buried in this two-chapter span of scripture that's proclaiming and explaining election. I think that's interesting. There's a cautionary tale there about pulling scripture out and having it say what you want it to say out of context. Challenge number 10. How does one know that they're saved? 
verse 10. So that's, so people say, how, how do we, if it's election, how do you know? If it's not based on what I do, because if it's based on what I do, I can say, well, if I do these things, then I'm saved. So I can bank on that. So what do I do, right? If, if election's true, how do I know I'm saved? Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, we don't have time, but I also want to point you to Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So if you see the fruit of the Spirit manifesting in your life, then that is a way to feel confident that, that God is working in you. He's created a new, a new being, a new creation in you. All right, challenge number 11. If election, then there's no need for evangelism or preaching. Uh, in college, this was the most common thing I heard from people who professed to believe in election. Why, don't have to, why, why do we have to go preach and do the gospel, do the evangelism stuff? We don't need to send missionaries. If they're God's elect, they're going to be God's elect. So I'm going to pick up in Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. So, so very clearly, we're, we're called to go preach. And, and historically, if you look in history, the greatest evangelists and the greatest evangelist movements and the greatest evangelist individuals were reformed. They were, were from a reformed background. Um, all right, so starting at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's this great quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he was talking about election and, and, and this idea of preaching to people and evangelizing to people. And this is what his quote was. If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the back of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will. And when whosoever believes I know that he is one of the elect. All right, challenge 12. How does God judge those who have never heard the gospel? Right, this is a common challenge. So I'm picking up in verse, verse 18 of Romans 10. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. 
For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So he is quoting a psalm here. I'm not going to read it. It's only 14 verses long. I should read it, but we're running out of time. Challenge you, go read Psalm 19. Go read it. All right, challenge 13. Oh, so, so the idea there is through the world, through nature, people see that people see. So God has communicated through nature. All right. Um, so challenge 13. But this idea of election flies in the face of the law and righteousness being earned. Like we see in the Old Testament, Israel, has a, Israel was a faithful people, so God blessed them. I've heard this. So um, one, you need to see Deuteronomy 7 explains why God chose Israel. It was not because they were obedient. And, and then I'm going to pick up in Romans 10. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. That's us. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. No reasonable person who has ever read the Old Testament can believe that God was faithful to Israel because they were obedient to him. It's literally the opposite of the, story, of the Old Testament story. It's the opposite of what the Old Testament is communicating to us. All right, challenge 14, second to last. This election thing is stupid. All right, just this is, this is stupid. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. <clears throat> the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I have said it before and I'll say it many times again. We should not be surprised when the world thinks we're stupid. Because to them we are. The Bible says that it isn't going to make sense to them. <clears throat> if we could invite the world to look at us right here tonight. Right here today. So why are you sitting in a room that's a little too warm, listening to someone talk for a little too long about a book that was written thousands of years ago? How in the world could this have any value to your, your life today? That's what they'd say. And they would be right from their perspective. They don't understand so we shouldn't be surprised, and, and quite honestly, we are seeing this today. 
We, we have lived in a society that has pretended to be Christian for a long time. It's kind of started off as Christian and then drifted away from it. So now it's pretending to be Christian for years, for decades, maybe for a century. Our society has pretended to be a Christian society. <clears throat> and now it's not. Now it's actually starting to break off, right? And you're seeing stuff... Target displays and Target with crazy stuff on it. You're seeing people can't tell the difference between men and a woman. Don't know if I'm a man or a woman or what's going on. We're talking about mutilating the bodies of children. Well, this is crazy. And of course it's crazy to us. It makes perfect sense to them. Because they don't understand. And, and we shouldn't expect them to. We shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. All right, final challenge. Challenge 15. What about the angels? And I don't know if Samantha Luchtfeld remembers this conversation, but we were at our old house in Smyrna, and we were having a conversation about predestination. Do you remember this? <clears throat> no, she doesn't. And part of that conversation, I mentioned, well, you know, the angels are elect too. And she said... What? I said, yeah. And I felt really good that I knew something about the Bible that Samantha didn't. And we looked it up and we found this scripture. So I'm, I want to mention this. First Timothy, because this is a challenge that you often hear. It's like, well, what about the devil? You know, they have free will, but we don't have free will and all this other stuff. Well, let, let's look and see what the Bible says. First Timothy 5.21. In the presence of God... And of, G and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. So yeah, the Bible tells us that there are angels that are elect. All right, so um, <clears throat> wrapping up here, the uh, I, I want to point you to two other chapters that you should look at, John 10 and Ephesians 1. And there are tons of other pa passages <coughs> that you know, should be in this sermon or could be in this sermon. We could preach for a year about this, okay? So these are all things <coughs> that are right understanding of where we are and who we are and who God is and what he has done for us should lead us to be incredibly thankful. Should lead us to just be just amazingly thankful for the gifts he gives us. Because we didn't earn this. We didn't earn our salvation. That's the, the general idea of this whole thing is we didn't earn this. It is a gift. God brought us back to life and then set us as a child in his household. So we were a dead rebel, a dead sinner, a criminal. But he brought us back to life and set us as a child in his household. And, and there are things, I mean, what we're doing here, just worshiping, that we're doing this out of a thankfulness. We should be doing it out of a thankful heart for what he's done for us. And, <clears throat> and that's how we're going to take, that's how we should take the Lord's Supper. So that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we should take that in a thankful way. So 
I, I really want you to think about that as the, it's in the back. I really want you to think about that as, as you take the Lord's Supper today. Because there, there's kind of different ways you can do this and there's different contexts. And sometimes we talk about uh, being repentant and being humble. And sometimes we talk about, you know, are you in right place with God or in right place with other people <clears throat> to take the Lord's Supper? And today, I just really want you to focus on the thankfulness that you can partake of the Lord's Supper and, and that we have been given this gift of grace. So as the, uh, the elements are being handed out, just take this time to think about how, how blessed and thankful you should be because of what you've been given.